0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at Africa, how the continent's museums are shaping the future of cultural institutions, and what the 19th century looting of the Benin Bronzes tells us about museums and colonialism. Then and now. I talked to Sonia Lawson, the founding director of the Palais de Lome in Togo, and Andres Santo, who's just written a book with 28 interviews with museum leaders across the world. I also speak to Dan Hicks about his book, The Brutish Museums, about the Benin Bronzes. And for our work of the week, Christopher Riapel of the National Gallery in London talks about a Jan Matejko painting of Copernicus that's coming to the National for an exhibition next year. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of our other newsletters, including the Book Club and the Art Market Eye. Now, a new book by the writer and cultural strategy advisor Andres Santo features 28 conversations with directors of museums and other arts institutions, all done during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Future of the Museum, 28 Dialogues, includes voices from across the world attempting to define museums and the challenges and opportunities ahead of them, now and in the coming years. Among them are four directors of African museums, including Sonia Lawson, the director of the Palais de Lome in Togo in West Africa, Andras and Sonia joined me to discuss the role of museums today and to look at how Sonia's Togolese institution reflects a new cultural dynamism on the African continent. Andres, I wanted to begin by asking you, this book was written on Zoom just as we are now essentially, so you talked to 28 museum or cultural institution directors about what they were doing. Uh, It happened to be done in the Covid era, as it were, But was it germinating as an idea for a much longer period?
1: This spring, I wrote an article in Artnet News, actually. Uh, I wrote it over uh, Easter weekend, so I remembered it very well. Uh, I guess that was early April. I can't remember the exact dates. And it was an article about reopening museums. And it just hit a nerve. It really got a lot of people talking at the time. And I heard from dozens and dozens of museum directors, and it just became part of a larger conversation. And that's when we really realized with Lena that this is the moment, because it gave us an editorial frame, uh, because it, it really was a moment that made us ask, what is the future about? I think we're still all trying to figure it out. I think there's no doubt in all of our minds that this is one of those years in the calendar that will be a a turning point, a historical marker where a new phase is beginning. Personally, I think this phase is the one that started in 1989, just ended. Now we have a new phase. So what does that mean for museums? Once I figured out that this would be a book, not just of conversations with museum directors, but conversations about the future, not necessarily revisiting why museums have been great in the past, of which there are many reasons to talk about that too, but to really have a forward-looking and... That is what led to choices like this extraordinary new institution in Togo, which I think gives such a taste of where museums or cultural institutions or cultural centers are headed um, all around the world. Uh, so, So in a way, this moment, this COVID moment crystallized how such a book could come about and how we would choose directors to be in it.
0: Before we speak specifically about uh, Sonia's institution, I wanted to ask you some about a, a phrase that you use in the introduction to the book where you talk about how the paradigm-smashing experimentation in museums and cultural institutions is happening in, effectively in the global south. So in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. Can you expand on that a bit now? Because w- what do you think lies behind that?
1: Well, first of all, that's not to say it's not happening elsewhere. And I think the book provides lots of examples of how people are thinking in new and original ways about the museums all around the world. But I think that there are perhaps two main reasons why so many of these truly interesting and I would say inspiring examples of new practices are often happening in the global south. One is that many of these institutions are brand new. So, and Sonia can speak to this, they have an opportunity to really design for the now and for the future. They're not dealing with a legacy infrastructure. They're not trying to retrofit something that was already there and try to adapt it to the future. I think there's another, perhaps, deeper reason as well. These institutions are situated in societies where they have a profound role to play. Uh, The education systems are sometimes not where they ought to be. Then maybe there aren't as many civil society institutions, so many places to exchange ideas. Um, So a big theme of the book is that the museum is taking on a larger social function um, beyond uh, the exhibition and collection and display of objects. And I think many of the institutions that are in the Global South um, have a, a really broad understanding of their remit in society and accordingly um, are creating programmes and solving for those problems.
0: Sonia, can you s- explain to us what you feel the role of the museum in within your community, but, but more broadly is?
2: That's a good question, because the role of a museum is It's true that we're here for our local community and for our local community, the role that we can bring them might be also to open up their, uh, th- their experiences and minds to other aspects and experiences that they can discover throughout going to the Palais. When I'm speaking about other experiences and knowledge is, uh, is for instance, that uh, they can discover people and peoples and, ex- and, uh, and works from other parts of the country or uh, from other parts of Africa as well. So it's a, a role of discovery, and experience living.
0: I'm really interested in the multidisciplinary nature of your institution, Sonia, because it's about art and biodiversity, quite clearly stated. And there's something that Koyo Ko says in the book, where she says that art in Africa is by its very nature multidisciplinary. And I wonder what you thought about that is, in a way... Is the 21st century nature of art very well suited to the kind of institutions that, that are arising in Africa?
2: Yes, totally. They are totally because we, it allows us to engage many conversations and the conversations are not uniquely based on art. It's more about art and the li- links to community, the link to our global ecosystem, our ecosystem environment, which means also biodiversity. It's a link to our know-how and it's linked to our um, our traditions, know-how, be, be them know-how in a, a craftsmanship, be it in gourmet food, in food. So it's it's a broader conversation about who we are and what we want to bring to our community and also to the rest of the world. So it's about us, it's about the rest of Africa and the rest of the world. Which means that the the, the, the conversations are uh, diverse because you have diverse sets of uh, uh, of questions uh, that are at stake today, and I think that we are very we are very lucky today because uh, the world of today is a shifting one, is a very challenging one for everyone. So we have different challenges in the West, in Africa, in other parts, but. This, this shift in words is challenges, and one of the means to meet challenges is to have a possibility to engage conversation, to open to to, to what is at stake. Here I will give an example. One of the example is Free Border Exhibition. Free Borders Exhibition is a contemporary art exhibition curated by a Nigerian, uh, Aminat Agoro. The theme of Free Borders is obviously the borders. How do we engage borders across Africa and also to present and exhibit artists across West Africa so from Ghana, Togo, Benin and Nigeria and these artists have in common to work and reuse the object so how do you reuse the object that, are seem, that seem to be everyday objects how do you reuse them and transform them through art so it also a means to think about the way your uh, environment is spoiled but it's also a way to say well this material that people throw and are considered as dust dustbin, how can we reuse them? How can we transform them? Because they are transforming our own environment. So throughout art, you can have questions and conversations about how you deal with your everyday object as well. And you deal with your past, your history. So it's a means to spark several conversations.
1: If I may jump in, I think one of the things that I found so inspiring in my conversations with Sonia is how... Again, in this brand new institution, she has solved and built in so many of the assumptions that so many well-established institutions in the West are are working so hard to implement. This primary sense of service to the community, this need and desire to reach those communities in languages and through programs that they can relate to and understand regardless of their educational level. Uh, This idea of not putting art in a bubble and separating it from environmentalism and and ecology. And perhaps um, most strikingly, this idea of the cultural institution as a sense of place, as a a place of communing. Uh, Her institution is, I believe, the only public park in the capital city of her nation. And uh, in a very symbolically resonant building that used to be a governor's mansion, but it is designed to be a place where you go spend time, not just to um, sort of genuflect in front of art objects or, or or absorb the you know intellectual sophistication of an exhibition, but also to have a wonderful meal, also perhaps to buy some fantastic things that are representatives of, of the local culture, also to walk around in this park and understand something about the flora and fauna of your country that you maybe are not visiting. Um, so there are countless examples of uh, what, what they have been doing uh, that, that really represent forward-edge thinking in, in museums today.
2: We are the only capital in coastal West Africa today to have a 26-acre park just in front of the sea which means that I hope we will inspire other capitals to have that. And we need to be relevant to each of our public. So we need to be relevant to the public of art lovers and people with a very thorough knowledge of objects and history and art, but also to the people who are curious about architecture and history of the place, because it was the former governor's palace, We need to be relevant to the people who are just there to enjoy a nice stroll in the park, that are enjoying the the, the song of the birds, the the trees. We need to be relevant to the scientists that are interested in the trees, but from a scientific point of view, in the birds, from a scientific point of view as well, because we have 41 species of birds. Uh, Some of them being very unique. So it, it means that for each of our audiences, we need to be relevant. We need to be relevant to the teenagers, They are very tough. I would say they are very tough because we need to speak to them in a certain manner so that you can uh, uh, interest them in what you're you're exhibiting. You need to be relevant to the children. You need to be relevant to people from different social backgrounds. So it means that for each of our public, we we don't have any one audience. I would say we have several audiences and we need to be relevant for, for each of them so that they can experience something that is relevant to them so for instance we use because we want to be deeply rooted in our traditions in west africa you have a strong tradition of storytelling so we we working with storytellers to tell the stories and the way they're telling it is not the classical connoisseur way of speaking because they they speak with their they song they sing they dance they speak they speak with their body as well and they speak and they read their speeches to very old and ancient traditions that, that are resonating inside the minds of our, our audiences. So that, that's one of the things to engage with local communities, to know how to speak to them, not to be condescending or to, I would say, we need to be relevant to everyone. everyone. Each and everyone should be able to find something in the venue that interests them. And uh, and this is one of our challenges, but one of the, maybe the most exciting challenges is that you, we try to be relevant to each of these audiences. So, for instance, we have guides, but these guides, they speak obviously French, which is the official language of Togo. They speak French-English, because we have people coming from Ghana, uh, the, the neighbouring Gara. So they speak French-English for the, our neighbours and the rest of the world. But they also speak Togolese local languages, so that they can explain in local languages the, the various exhibitions. So each exhibition has a guide that is included in um, in the package. So to say, this, so when you arrive, you have a guide that explains you the exhibitions, and they are very, I would say, they are very welcoming, because what we want to do is to welcome everyone like at home. So so that the Forbidden Place, the place of power of governor, is now our place as Togolese. So it's the place of all the Togolese, which means that we need to welcome them as if they were at home. So it's a different type of approach.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because it seems to me really symbolic that a building which was built in the colonial era and was built by, of course, Togolese people working for the colonial powers is now a a palace for the people, essentially. And can you tell me about any challenges that you faced in enticing your audiences into that building, which obviously has so much resonance in terms of its colonial uh, history?
2: Yes, it it does. It it has resonance. And, you know, at the beginning of the construction, because the, the place was in decay, it was abandoned for more than 20 years. So at the beginning of the construction works, people were saying, well, why do we need to restore this colonial building that is so symbolic of uh, colonization, German, French, English, and so on? So, And um, our answer to that was that it was built by the Togolese and that this place is very... It's its true that it's, it's really a forbidden place. So many people told me at the beginning, and even now, some say, well, it's not for me. You know, this place is... It, it, it reminds so much history. And I said, yes, but the irony now is that it's for you. And that's why we, we did one of our first exhibitions is the Togo of the Kings. So in this place of power, we want to show also the kingdoms of Togo and the, the traditions of Togo that are still alive today. So it, it's a link and it's an irony to say, well, this, this is now your turn. It's your place. It's our place. And we need to, to embrace that. The history exists we need to we we it's it's as it is it's good to understand it, to know about it, but we need to move forward and to move toward our past. so back to the past and back to the future.
1: I just want to mention that this is not the only uh building uh, museum building or cultural center in the book that has such a complex history that is both resonant and challenging in many ways. It's just that it's a very recent. You know, when we all walk into the Louvre in Paris, we forget that today that it is, of course, a royal palace, you know, and uh, it's just that it's been a museum for so long that some of those connotations are less apparent. Um, In Singapore, the National uh, Gallery in Singapore... Uh, recently opened in what was the high court building. And you you can really feel that history there. Um, In Dresden, which is also in the book, you have 15 museums that used to be royal palaces, also complex histories. But even beyond that, I think, if you look at the 19th century museums with their columns and their sort of Greek temples and their lists of artist names, invariably white and male, all of these buildings carry... Um, uh, deep historical messages, which are meant to have originally meant to be very inspiring and ennobling, but actually are a little bit of a baggage that they have to deal with. And similarly, in several places in the book, we also talk about the latest museums with their, you know, modernist, uh, minimalist architecture, their white cube galleries one of the great phrases in the book is that the white cube is itself a period room. It, it also um, represents a certain set of ideas about a culture and art's place in the culture and how we relate to art. So none, no building is ever innocent. And part of the job of a museum director and their team is to make make the most of that and to find the right way to deploy and project the meanings that are embedded in that in that site.
0: Sonia, I wanted to ask you about Africa and Togo. And uh, this is a very pointed question from a Western point of view, because I think it's it very often when people talk about museums in Africa, they talk about African museums and reduce this enormous continent into this single entity. And I wondered about what role you see your institution playing in terms of the narrative of africa and also the african diaspora in a sense you know is your primary engagement to your local community or do you feel a very strong compulsion to represent african values as it were if there is such a thing as african values
2: i think it's true that africa is such a broad continent uh, that it's it's hard to summarize it uh, by saying we represent africa we just represent an aspect of africa because it's a it's so multi-layered as a continent it's a it's enormous continent so rich in cultures and diversity and uh, but for us which what is very important it's part of our mission is to, to to be able to to welcome and exhibit africa and its diasporas which means diasporas based african and its various diasporas from uh, across the, the ocean or in the West, so we, we have a broad diaspora of Africa and African descent that we want to exhibit in the venue, and it's uh, it's hard to say that we represent the whole Africa. What we want to do is to, yes, I think each time in our exhibitions, maybe to exhibit one part of Africa. It it it, it can be also a philosophical question to say, well, what is Africa? I don't know what is Africa. What I say, what I can say is that it's a continent full of. Diversity, richness, values, histories, and these histories needs to be told. So, for instance, for Togo, it was very for us. It was quite obvious that we needed to to highlight and showcase the rest of the continent and have a pan-African approach uh, because it, it derives from our, our history itself. Because Togo was considered historically as a safe harbour in West Africa, uh, it was a, a cultural hub because many peoples and uh kingdoms of over parts of west africa became to togo so it's at the confluence of many of the regions great great kingdoms and peoples like yoruba that are now in nigeria peoples living in ghana benin uh, in uh, burkina so we have many pe- peoples that gathered here in what is nowadays togo so for us it was very obvious that we needed to to have a broader approach to our neighboring countries and to our continent, and we we hope also to have links and relationship and exchanges and circulating of objects, circulations with peoples from Eastern Africa, Northern Africa, or Southern Africa that Togolese don't normally know are not not so well about, not so thoroughly from a cultural point of view. So it will be also the opportunity for them to discover more about their continent. So we we always mix. Uh, international, intercontinent, I would say, uh, Pan African vision and local vision. How to be our core is to be relevant to our local audience, but we know that we, we want also to be relevant to other audiences coming from other parts of the continent. Neighboring countries, we want each of them to discover one aspect of Togo and want also the Togolese to discover other aspects of the continent. So it goes two ways.
0: Andras, it's this to me, what Sonia just said speaks very powerfully to this idea of the museum's changing function in the sense that the traditional Western museum is this idea it's this idea of a, of a, a palace of, of of art of objects and an authoritative museum explaining those to you and and your book very clearly articulates that that role is shifting in different parts of the world and in ways that in fact, is redefining what museums are.
1: Absolutely. I think the two relevant conclusions when you pull back and sort of read all the, the interviews side by side, one is that there's, there is a shift going on in the field. But it's important to say that that shift is not to the detriment of the traditional Uh, scholarship, this idea of the museum as this place where you encounter things and ideas and uh, expertise and so on. It's, It's not a question of either or, it's a question of and, that a current generation of museum directors all around the world for many years now have been thinking hard about these other rings of Saturn around the museum, these questions around community engagement and how do we sort of come more to the you know level with the audience and how we use technology how we engage other forms of creativity and that this is a this is this is enriching the museum it's not undermining the project of the museum the other i think really heartening conclusion is that that answer to what a museum is doesn't always have to be the same. It will be different in Togo than in Cape Town. Uh, it will be different again in Amsterdam or Budapest or New York or Singapore or Adelaide. and that is great and I, I sort of came to the conclusion if, you know that, that perhaps what we may may put forward is, is, is an understanding. That where the late 20th century gave us a pluralism in art, where we realize that anything can be art, that there can be a multiplicity of art discourses, parallel histories, and that we need to engage all those different possibilities, that transformation perhaps is now happening in the institutional sector, where you do not just have to copy the models coming out of Europe and North America, where an institution be- being more embedded in its history, its culture, its community, of course, is going to be a different, slightly different answer to what a museum can be. And that pluralism, that diversity, that that um, complexity and sp- is going to be a very welcome next stage for museums.
2: You know, I was rethinking of what Andres said about the way that we, we need to... Uh, to to rethink the model and that not to retrofitting a model. It's true that we, as a a new institution, we had to create our own references and framework. That's why we could mix art and biodiversity. And it was for us very obvious to do so. And for instance, what a curator for a museum normally don't do is that when you have an an exhibition with objects, you can hardly put the object outside, uh, give it to their owners... So that they can use it, and then that the object can come back. Of course, in a normal Western museum, you can't do that because it doesn't follow the rules. It's not it's not something you can do for many reasons. But here in Lomé, we could do that. So for one of the exhibition, the Togo of the Kings, one of the lenders were, were was ready to to lend to lend the object, but they said, well, we need to to have it. Uh, we need to have it for 15 days to do special rituals and ceremonies with it. So we need to have, it ba- to have it back, and then we can give it back to you. So we accepted, and the objects so left the palais. And after 15 days, they came back, not exactly the same, because they were used and touched. And so you can see this, uh, they weren't the same object. But for us, it was OK. It was, it was part of what we, we think about these objects, because they are living objects, so we used them. So a, a typical classical institution obviously can't do that. So it's one of the ways to engage.
0: Um, Andres, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that many of the people that you spoke to have very diverse skills. Sonia is a perfect example. Sonia has worked in, within, within the corporate world as well as the art, artistic worlds. So it, it seems to me that, that as well as seeing new models of museum, we're also seeing new models of museum director, right?
1: Yes. I mean, look, the vast majority still come up the, you know, art history PhD track in Somerset House and, you know, all that. But but we do have one director in the book who was a professional clown for a while. (laughs) And we do have one who used to be a rocket scientist. And we do have one who started a technology startup in his 20s while he was a Rhodes Scholar. And we do have one who speaks in the book about how he's always wanted to join the boards of Fortune 500 companies, because he feels that a museum director has all the skills and insights uh, to contribute to a board of of that kind. Uh, once again, we come back to the diversity of institutions. I mean, the current crisis looks very different from a state-run European institution, where the employees are um, basically civil servants who are on the on the city payroll. It looks very different. From a an American museum that has a multi-billion dollar endowment and, and, and another one that doesn't, it it looks very different in a private museum where maybe you have a, a backer who has gotten richer during the pandemic period, as many billionaires have, and it looks very different again from a um, a startup which which is sort of still getting its sea legs. So it's very hard to generalize, but I think you you know the cliche about every crisis being an opportunity, does apply. I think that one of the things that perhaps we can all agree is that in the last decade, when things were sort of on the up and up post-financial crisis, you know, it papered over the fundamental uh, difficulty around the sustainability of institutions. And that is this. On the one hand, society keeps asking more and more of museums. We want sushi in the cafeteria. We want multiple language um, guides. We want digital everything. We want, you know, green roofs and sustainable buildings. We want, um, you know, after school services. We want collections to reflect a much broader array and diversity of our culture. All of that is dollars and pounds and more money and money and money. We want all those things. We demand those things uh, because we think that the museum being this public institution with these many functions should deliver all that. On the other hand, government is not uh, appreciably stepping up. Private philanthropy, uh, especially the large-scale philanthropy, is often gravitating to domains outside of culture, looking for bigger problems, as it were. Um, And now we've had this crisis around the basic visitor business model. So somewhere something has to give. And this has opened up some space for perhaps new thinking, um, including sacred cows. uh, As well known uh, in the United States, the former very strong limitations on deaccessioning have been very gingerly given another look. Um, I think that there are examples even in the book about how institutions are trying to look again at what their funding sources are. Let's not forget that a year ago, before COVID, the biggest news in our field was, how dare you take money from, name your company, name your individual. That's another way that uh, these museums are blocked. So um, one can hope that perhaps this very difficult experience may uh, open some pathways to rethinking how we make this sustainable, because either you dial back the ambition around what you can do, or you come to some new understandings about how you're going to float the boat. Okay,
0: well, Andres and Sonia, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast.
2: Thank you to you.
0: It's a pleasure. You can find out more about the Palais de Lome at palaisdelome.com. And Andras Santos' The Future of the Museum, 28 Dialogues, is published by Hatia Kantz in Europe on the 30th of November and worldwide in January 2021. It's priced €21.99. You can read Andras' comment piece for the art newspaper on our website or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll talk to Dan Hicks about the Benin Bronzes and their restitution to Africa in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. A mysterious object resembling the freestanding plank sculptures of the late minimalist artist John McCracken, or the alien built monoliths in Stanley Kubrick's sci-fi classic 2001 A Space Odyssey, has been discovered in a remote area of the Utah desert, prompting theories ranging from extraterrestrial visitation to avant-garde installation. Biologists from the Utah Division of Wildlife spotted the monolith from a helicopter while conducting a routine count of bighorn sheep in the area. The location of the monolith has not been disclosed, but aerial footage showing the object in installed within a Red Rock Canyon, suggests that it lives somewhere in southern Utah, which has a distinct topological landscape. A number of arts professionals have received fake emails inviting them to participate in Documenta, the prestigious contemporary art exhibition which happens every five years in the German city of Kassel, and whose 15th edition is scheduled to take place in 2022. By yesterday, Documenta knew of 32 such fake invitations. Unfortunately, we don't yet know who sent them, said a Documenta spokeswoman. The director of the Liverpool Biennial, Fatos Ustek, has resigned after 17 months in the role following a dispute with the organisation's board. Two trustees, the artist Fiona Banner and the art and intellectual property lawyer John Sharples have also stepped down to protest against the board's treatment of Ustek who said in a statement, quote, Governance issues with a lack of clarity on roles and responsibilities and processes not being followed, taken together, made my role untenable. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. As art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's continues to innovate with its auction calendar. Join Christie's London online or in person this season for Classic Week, a sales series celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. Over ten auctions, they're presenting the very best in classic art, from a Roman marble herm of Dionysus, last seen in Christie's sale room a hundred years ago, to a magnificent dahim still life of a banquet. Elsewhere, explore several standout private collections, including an exceptional overview of Italian drawings from the Robert Landolt Collection and enchanting pre-Raphaelite paintings from the Joe Seton Collection. Sales run until the 17th of December. The refreshed schedule complements Christie's private sales, bid, and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Before we go on, some exciting news about our other podcast, A Brush With, in which I have in-depth conversations with artists about their influences and cultural experiences. A new series of eight episodes begins next Wednesday with A Brush With, Ragnar Kjartansson. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, the Benin bronzes, the thousands of brass plaques and carved ivory tusks depicting the history of the Royal Court of the Obas of Benin City, now in Nigeria, were looted during a British naval attack in 1897 and now famously sit in museums around the world, most notably the British Museum and the Ethnological Museum in Berlin, as well as numerous private collections. Dan Hicks is Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford and curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum there, and he's just published a book, The Brutish Museums, about the history of the bronzes and the ultra-violence of colonialism and museums' complicity in it. Dan joined me to talk about the book and what hope there is for these pillaged objects' return to their homeland. Dan, I wanted to begin by asking you about museums and what kind of spaces they are, because A key argument in your book is that museums are not neutral spaces, whatever some of the people that run them seem to want to tell us.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, that's a good place to start. So for me, obviously, I mean, I work in a university museum. uh, And it, you know, maybe that in higher education, we're more aware of the function of museums, which is an important function of all museums, to be sites of knowledge. So, this is about understanding the world, but it's also you know layers from the past of of other ways in which you know the wider world has been understood so for anthropology and archaeology, often of course, you know those you know modes of understanding the form of knowledge that was being made was one that we wouldn't actually adhere to you know now so so anthropology had a absolutely central role in Arguments over white supremacy, over yeah, cultural evolution. Um, so the public space of the museum today is the recipient of those ideas, but it's also, I think, an incredibly important, you know, public space in which we're able, if we get it right, to understand, you know, what archaeology and anthropology can can offer, you know, in the present
0: day. But it's also crucial, isn't it, that. Like at points in your book, you argue that the museum is a weapon, that it is an agent in the process of colonialism. It's used in that white supremacy. It's, a very, it's, it's an instrument of white supremacy to a certain degree.
3: Yeah, that's right. And I think that was one of the, you know, sort of sort of aha moments as I was writing the book. There were quite you know, a number of them, I've got to say, of things that I discovered in the writing process but certainly one of the big ones, was to realise the central role that museums had to play. I mean, you know, who knew that art was important in, you know, world history? I mean, we often don't don't think that's the case. Who thought that actually, in order, in order to fight you know, racism in the present, that a museum of all places would be the place that, that you would choose? For a lot of actually you know good reasons right-thinking people have thought actually maybe this is not the case you know maybe art is just art let's sort of leave it to it but but in the 1890s actually your culture was being actively put to work to justify but also to naturalize and to make endure the 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 sort of idea of a cultural yeah, superiority so that's what you know that's what the Pitt rivers was and the sheer speed at which as the book you know documents how fast these objects from this absolute you know you know the uh the free-for-all that happened with the looting from officers from administrators. You know, hundreds of men on the ground who actually return with thousands of objects. How fast some of those end up on display in London and Berlin. That is a weaponization of uh, culture. Yes. I
0: was, I was intrigued. There's a really nice analogy that you use where you say that colonialist ultraviolence is like a victorian smog sort of uh, coming up through the iron grills in museums and i think that's a really interesting idea that that it's it's not just like a it's not just a past mode for museums this there's still an active legacy of that attitude right now in museums today
3: yeah that's right so i think you know overall we would argue in in any setting when we think about empire that it's important to say that empire isn't over you know but but here in the museum we see there's another layer to that. Rather than just asserting, you know, racism based on imperial ways of seeing hasn't sort of gone away, we see how it's actu- it, it has actively been you know, built into institutions. And our museums are, as we know, spaces which are interventions in time, They slow time down to such a degree that the museum seems to to be unchanging. Some of our colleagues in museums think that means that the world around the museum will never change. But, of course, it does. So I think all those arguments add up to, you know, a sense that the uh, the museum is an incredibly important space for recognising the endurance of empire.
0: I was really struck by this idea in the book that there's this roll call of what you call, you know, this roll call of dead white men who were involved in the looting. So rather than just saying, as the museums will give very very short lip service to, that oh there was this punitive uh, expedition and some works got stolen and oh aren't they wonderful? Aren't they? Aren't they extraordinary? You actually say, okay, here are 17 people who were in- directly involved in this process. Can you explain why you wanted to do that?
3: Yeah. So, you know, I always uh, believed what I had been uh, told about the Benin expedition until I began looking at it, which was that the looting was a kind of official process that the objects were sold off in order to to pay for the costs of, of an attack that I was told was entirely, you know, justified. All of that house of cards falls apart as soon as you begin looking at it. But one of those elements is that, idea that this was an official process. So each of these individual officers, you know, you know, who I who I list, each of whom, you know, were able to piece together certain objects that they took and they've moved down across generations and families. Some are sold off on the death, some are sold off actually later in life, some, of course, immediately sold. Um, that's how we do the provenance work for for this you know, this event in which the 10,000 objects, the the way in which they are now in over 150, 160 museums around the world, that is an instance. I mean, when I added up how many there are and actually where they are in the world, it's almost like the sheer violence of that attack leads to this fragmentation. So in order to address that, we need to do the micro histories of each of these individual men.
0: You mentioned time earlier on, and there's again there's this there 's a really interesting notion that that we think of museums as spaces which somehow illuminate time illuminate history but there 's this idea that you put forward that actually museums annihilate time. Can you explain a bit more about that
3: sure so there are two ideas, and the you know, the book introduces or attempts to introduce a, a set of new concepts really that we that, 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 you know, that we might work with in art history and in allied you know, disciplines. The two that really relate to time are the notion of the chronopolitical and the notion of the necrographic. So the chronopolitical is that idea that that in, in the process of the murdering of a whole culture and the taking of their objects and their display alongside ancient Egypt and Assyria in the British Museum in Oxford in Berlin, There's a presentation, almost a use of archaeology to say that this culture, this, you know, longstanding sovereign power is now dead. It's in the past. And that's part of a wider argument or, 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 if you like, a wider ideology that Africa is in the past and Europe is in the present. Hand in hand with that, you've got the necrographic. So we're often told that the taking of objects, the moving them from A to B, almost adds a new layer to their lives. This is recontextualization. This is something that's always happened. It, it, and it's positive. It's additive. An object has a life history. And in the book, I argue that has it absolutely upside down you know these are not we don't need life histories we need the death histories the histories of loss through which you know objects that were taken under such you know ultra violence you know end up in a museum so the necrographic this is a this is an adoption of a and Bembe's a notion of the necro Political, The contemporary politics of who lives and who dies, which in turn is about the idea of the biopolitical, you know, not being up to it. Here we have the biographical approach to art objects being, you know, inverted so we can talk about the necrographic.
0: Right. I mean that is such a significant thing as well isn't it because it's part of this idea being expressed much more widely in recent years and being much debated about museums being as much about people as objects. I know that's an that's a kind of notion that you have explored quite a bit here and elsewhere, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean for me the model of the curator that I was, you know, offered as an as an ideal you know, when I was first you know, working in museums was, you know, the history of the world in a hundred objects sort of model. You know, the Neil McGregor model where there's one, you know, white guy that has all the answers, understands all the histories. You know, the objects kind of illustrate those histories. They're not really, you could you could tell the story without the objects, but it's quite nice to have these things as, you know, a bit of visual dimension for a hook to hang your stories off that model is absolutely of the last millennium you know today curating or curation is has to be about you know not just yourself it's a collective act it's always a co-curation has to be about the foregrounding of other voices at the appropriate point to uh, to pass the mic, but also to use your expertise to share the knowledge. So that's something this book aims, you know, really to do, you know, which is if you like a part of a wider movement, as I see it, that's happening in our museums and has to happen, you know, to care about, you know, you know, objects, but actually to care about the people who value them, you know, more um and to move to such a, a sort of point where we can we, you know, we can you know rehumanize these these you know the galleries of of our museums
0: an interesting aspect of what you, you know you're talking about neil, neil mcgregor there is that in a way you talk about a sort of recent wave of a kind of colonial attitude in the form of the Universal Museum as expressed by McGregor and others in recent years and, and mostly, the essentially, the leaders of Western museums, especially in, to, in relation to claims of restitution. Can you explain a bit more about that?
3: Yeah, so the book, you know, outlines the, uh, the declaration of the, of the value of uh, Universal Museums as it came out in... Yeah, two thousand and two. You know, uh, and the book situates that moment not only in terms of the long term uh, campaigns in the nineties, in the case of you know, Nigeria, the uh, the, uh, the Bernie Grant, you know, campaign, but but also you, you know, in in, you know, in the context of the Athens Olympics and the calls for the return of the Parthenon Marbles you know there's a pushback uh, there's a there's a reinvention there's an assertion of the timelessness and the you know the kind of internationalism of museums that comes comes out in that statement sandwiched halfway in between you know 911 and the invasion of iraq and i argue that not only is it the the universalist argument it's not only mortgaged to the Blairite model of multiculturalism as a sort of melting pot that we can forget about the histories of how these objects came here, but we can um, have conversations across different cultures in the present. We can instrumentalise the museum in that way, but we can also, you know, lucky us, we can also save the destination tourism you know, industry. We can get people on aeroplanes again, after 9-11, because look, you know, why don't you go back and forward between London and New York and see these, these objects? Now, of course, for Africans, the changing you know, visa regimes since, you know, that moment have made you know what was already a fairly shaky argument. You know, the reality of it actually, you know, becomes you know, less and less of a reality. And then, of course, I mean, here we are in the time of you know, lockdown, which for many of us, you know, certainly for me, I think this isn't a you know, dress rehearsal for environmental change. This is the start of environmental change as we see it and how that's going to affect, you know, culture. So, of course, it's impossible. It's unsustainable to say that you get on an aeroplane if you want to see your own culture. So that's the context in which really, you know, restitution today has to move away from what was a very thin and ultimately unconvincing argument to say that the universal museum has, has always that the British Museum has always been a universal museum. The book argues, you know, that, that, that isn't the case. It's a modern myth, not an enlightenment ideal. Um, and it also attempts to put you know to to actually say, well here's what we can do instead.
0: There was a group set up called the Benin Dialogue Group. How effective a group was it? And what were its aims and, and and did it address the issues that we've been discussing?
3: Sure. And so the group actually, you know, continues to exist. It's a coming together, you know, really importantly, of the key actors in Nigeria, which, you know, includes the nation state, but also the federal government and the royal court, um, with a number of the museums with the larger collections around the world, you know, largely European. Um and you know there there have been you know regular meetings of the dialogue group you know the dialogue group itself hasn't got a position it doesn't it you know it does every time it meets it issues a summary of what was discussed but you know often you see it misreported in the media that you know that the dialogue group thinks this or that each of the members institutional members of the of the group has its own and and indeed often evolving you know, you know, current position on, you know, restitution. You know, one thing which has been incredibly uh, good, I think, out of those conversations has been the support of the planning. So one of the things that's really important has been the setting up of the Legacy Restoration Trust, which actually the dialogue you know, group has been able to support, which is a Nigerian-based entity that in turn is going to support the uh, the new museum sort of happening. So, you know, that's all great. But there also comes a point where uh, dialogue has to give way to action. And therefore, the you know, the dialogue group continues. There will be another meeting, you know, COVID permitting, you know, you know, next year at the British Museum. But, you know, the world is also continuing, you know, to turn. And I expect that next year... We may well see some further returns. We saw some returns this year, as the governor mentioned in a recent speech. And I think, you know, we all expect further returns to happen, you know, whether as as actually part of the group or outside of it.
0: Right. Let's talk about the sort of legalities of restitution, because one another argument against restitution is, oh, we just can't do it because the rule the laws say we can't do it but we know from the savoisse report and the ripples from the savoisse report that france for instance is now taking action to repatriate objects so do you think that legal argument can stand for much longer do you think it's it's on borrowed time to a certain degree
3: yes i think it is i mean the first thing of course you know to observe is that you know european law as opposed to other legal systems elsewhere in the world, is not necessarily where we have to start. You know, when the French say that, that you know, what is in the Musée du Quai Lee is inalienable, in other words, it can't be given away. Well, for the communities from which it was taken, it was inalienable as well. It's like, <laughs> right. you know, trying to take a la- you know, your landscape. It's you know, like sort of trying to take your children. And of course, I mean, the British and the French and others have a history of, you know, the taking of your people from West Africa, you, you know, the taking of land, but somehow the taking of objects we have not thought of in the same way. So, I mean, the legal cases, yeah, you know, undoubtedly there are some instances where, you know, modern you know, looted objects have, you know, illegally found their way into collections. You know, but the legal thing and the idea that there's a legal... You know, there are some cases with our national museums in Britain where there is a legal constraint against, you know, deaccessioning and therefore restitution. However, you know, across our museums, returning objects is absolutely the norm already. It is business as usual for Holocaust spoliation, you know, since the 90s for the return of human remains. And for many African societies... You know that sort of division that we we are making as the curators, in between a cultural object of ancestral and sacred or royal, you know, significance that not only const yeah, not only sort of represents but constitutes an ancestor. The you know, the idea that, that that we're going to treat that cultural object differently, you know, to the physical rem- you know, remains of that ancestor as a person is an arbitrary decision. So. You know, we're already restituting in those other contexts. And the law was changed for Holocaust spoliation, absolutely crucially for the the nationals. So here in our non-national museums, in the university museums, you know, up and down the UK, you know, you're never more than 150 miles away from a lucid African object. And and often they're not in the national museums, even in the case, the iconic case of uh, Benin, You know, more than half of the looted objects that were taken in that raid here in the UK are not in the British Museum. They're elsewhere.
0: That's right. It's astonishing that only eight or nine percent of the objects from Benin City are actually in in the British Museum. Is that right? Yes,
3: exactly. Yeah. And there there are certain larger collections, you know, Berlin and the British Museum. But yeah, you know, there are there are many, many other collections from Cambridge, you know, to Edinburgh, to Oxford, you know to Exeter, you know, Bristol, Dublin, you know, Abu Dhabi, you know, you name it around the world, you know, St. Petersburg to L.A. That's where these objects are. And so that's an important part of what the book does. It attempts the first attempt and it is a provisional attempt. Um, you know, there are other museums which which actually, you know, since the book has uh, come out, a lot of people have written to me and said, here's a single object in you know, one other museum. So there will be a second edition that updates that list. But those appendices at the back of the book are in some ways something that we need for all African objects, for, out, for objects taken in less iconic you know dramatic circumstances archaeological objects objects of natural history, objects that were taken by other you know other processes you know the sarafwa report made the argument important argument that ninety five percent of africa's you know heritage is 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 outside the continent you know I would counter that or I would add another layer to that that here in the u k you know less than one percent of african objects are on display most are in the storerooms some are in uh, boxes that haven't been opened for a hundred years you know we need to tackle you know the reality of what this is you know and so the legal challenges who you know that that's a that's really a tiny part of you know managing things that of course actually uh, it costs a lot of money to hold on to these things in the storerooms and especially if we if we don't even understand what we've got
0: I'm taken by this idea that runs throughout the book as, as as your process as researchers, as curators, as a kind of archaeological process, in, in, in a sense, reorientating re archaeology towards this new form of provenance research, which actually works with repatriation and restitution. So can you tell us about some of the projects you're actually involved in that are actively working in this area? Yes, of course,
3: absolutely. So there are three main, you know, initiatives which I'm involved in, uh, which is aiming to move from dialogue to action for restitution. So the first, you know, we, you know that we're just launching this autumn um, is a programme called Action for Restitution to Africa. You know, this is led from Accra, from Cairo and from South Africa. Uh, you know, alongside me, with, with me being the supply side in some way of you know some of the knowledge but the aim there you know with with the funding from open society foundations and from other bodies is to start to build an african led you know network so that restitution claims can can be advanced and actual restitutions you know will happen you know what does success at the end of that 3 year program look like it looks like the physical return of objects you know actually you know, from America and Europe, you know, returning actually, you know, to the continent of, of Africa. So the second programme I'm involved in is funded by the AHRC and the DFG, which is which is the German equivalent of, of arts funding for universities. And this is uh, Benedict Savoir and I are the, are the, are the leaders of this work. And we're calling it the restitution of uh, knowledge. And this approach really tries to reverse engineer the question of how we understand, you know, what was taken. And we want to reimagine the objects in museums as a kind of index of acts of violence. So incredibly, even though we know the ins and outs of every hour, every minute of the First World War, every battle, every... You know, casualty is so well understood. If you go back just you know, a year or two, really, you know there are there are enormous African conflicts from the eighteen eighties onwards, even earlier, which were such important. To yeah, military operations in which objects were taken that we just don't even understand. They they don't even have a Wikipedia page. This is a conversation across Europe. It's based in the Berlin and Oxford you know, teams, but it's also reaching out, you know, to France and to Belgium, you know, Netherlands. So we can w- aim to match up, you know, objects in museums and these acts of taking. So we've heard of the Benin expedition, but maybe we haven't heard of of other expeditions in you know Uganda in you know Ghana in Egypt and so on and then the third which is going to kick off early you know next year so early in 2021 is the the the, the network of devolving you know, restitution so the devolving restitution network is a series of the non-national museums which i mentioned who find themselves actually not subject You know, actually to the legal conditions of uh, the National Heritage Act, who are often also led by and have individuals working in them who, exactly like me, think that we need to adopt an open-minded, action-oriented and, of course a case by case approach, you know, to restitution. And so that will be a series of online events. I mean, we were intending these to be face to face. Who knows about the second year of it. But again, you know, we're not asking the museums. And this involves a whole host of, you know, more than a dozen of of the key museums across the UK. And it's wonderful to be having those conversations alongside African colleagues, you know, as well, who are able to make the case for restitution. So the first of those is happening, you know, early next year. Um, So you can follow the Twitter account at British Museum in order to keep up to date on that.
0: So, Dan, thanks for coming on and talking about this enormously complicated but fast-moving at last topic. Okay, thank you. Dan Hicks's "The Brutish Museums" is published by Pluto Press and in their sale until the 9th of December, you can get it for 10 pounds in hardcover or 399 as an ebook. Now it's time for the work of the week. It was announced this week that in March next year a seminal work by the Polish painter Jan Matejko will travel to the National Gallery in London for an exhibition. The Portrait of Copernicus is one of Poland's most famous paintings and I spoke to Christopher Riapel, a curator of post-1800 paintings at the National and the organiser of the Matejko show about the painting. You can see an image of it on the Art Newspaper's website. Click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Christopher, we'll talk about the specific work in a moment, but first I think we need to explain to our listeners who Jan Matejko is. Tell us more about him.
4: Any Pole would tell you in great detail who Jan Matejko was. He was and remains the most famous of all Polish painters. Um, He's born in 1838 in Krakow. He lives almost his entire life there and he takes very early on the history of Poland, the great moments of Poland as Uh, the subject of his art, turning out an extraordinary range of images evoking the history, the passions, the defeats of the Polish people, uh, so that for almost any Pole, how they think of their history, they see it through the eyes of Matejko.
0: What about technically? Because it seems to me looking at his work really for the first time, that he's within an academic tradition. To what extent was he part of that sort of academy system in Europe?
4: He studied in both Munich and briefly in Vienna. The academy in Krakow is now named after him. Uh, And he also sent pictures fairly regularly to Paris. So he was, yes, on that international circuit of um, academic painters, uh, painting in the, the last vestiges, I think you'd say, of history painting.
0: Okay, and we're going to talk about this work uh, which features Copernicus, so tell us, you know, what's the significance of Copernicus to the Polish people?
4: Copernicus, the
0: great astronomer,
4: the man who, in the early uh, 16th century, realizes uh, again, uh, for the first time since the ancient Greeks, uh, the heliocentric model of our solar system: we rotate around the sun; uh, the sun, etc., does not rotate around the Earth and and mankind. It represented um, a great great leap forward in understanding our place in the universe. Uh, He has long been seen by Nietzsche, among others, as the great exponent of a particularly Polish kind of independence of mind, a willingness to see beyond convention, uh, which has always been uh, an important part of the Polish imagination. The painting by Matejko arises at the moment of the 400th anniversary of his birth in uh, uh, 1873, when his nationality, as it were, was very much contested, because where he had lived was now controlled by Germany. Uh, his first language may well have been German. And the Germans, Goethe, uh, having started the, the it in a certain way, uh, wanted to claim him as one of the great geniuses of the German imagination. So 1873 was very important for the Poles in winning back Copernicus as being a true Pole. And it's in that context that who was already the most famous polish painter sets out to paint an image of copernicus that would definitely establish him as the genius of poland
0: it's a really intriguing picture isn't it because you're not seeing him in a way defining that famous diagram he's not he's not articulate it's in the picture but it's not that isn't the subject of it. What 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 is the subject? The subject,
4: and this I think was was first draw me to it was that very question: What's going on here? I would understand a thing, uh, an image uh, showing us Copernicus at the moment that he discovers the heliocentric model. But it's not, as you say, he has discovered it. The diagram is in the picture. Uh, what we see is the moment that he turns and explains it to God he's having conversations uh,
0: with God saying, you know, you may not know it, but what you've done is really wonderful. So tell us about that, because it, the religious aspect is really crucial part of Copernicus's life. Is it also significant to Mateko? Was Mateko a religious person? And so that, in a way, is there an element of his own personal questioning going on here? Or is it is it m- merely documenting a kind of important moment in Copernicus and Poland's life, as it were?
4: Matejko himself was quite religious, and in the Polish context, that is, of course, Roman Catholicism. Uh, But I think a very important point that Matejko is making in the painting is that the discovery that man was not at the center of the universe, the discovery that we rotate around the sun, did not contradict the Polish dedication to the Roman church. Uh, they were not in conflict as in, in later years, the heliocentric model came to be. At that point in the 16th century, Copernicus did not challenge God. Uh, he was merely revealing
0: the wonder of God's creation. And that's right. In a way, there's a kind of divine light falling on him in this picture, isn't there? There's, he's, he's lit rather beautifully from above. And he
4: has the ecstasy of genius, as it were, as he explains to God, look what I have discovered uh, by looking beyond mere pretense uh, and seeing the way things really are in your universe.
0: Can you tell us about the sort of iconography of the work? Because it's loaded with stuff, isn't it? it, it all around, so not just in, in terms of the landscape, in terms of the instruments around him, everything.
4: Copernicus uh, at that
0: point was an official of the Roman Catholic Church in Frombork
4: in the north of uh, Poland. He is on uh, the tower of Frombork, a large structure there, with the cathedral immediately behind him, with the Vistula River seen out the beyond. Uh, So that you know immediately this can only be Poland, which is very important to the meaning uh, of the picture. And it's there working in the church as a canon that he also carried on his scientific investigations that would
0: lead to this new realization. So he's surrounded by scientific instruments, but also with this looming ecclesiastical building behind him. So that, that connection between science and, and, and faith is immediately established the minute you look at it, right? For uh, mateko at least, it was... Very important to be
4: historically accurate in that sort of thing, the buildings, the the scientific instruments. Uh, In fact, we have in the exhibition as well the first small oil sketch for the picture. And at that point in the oil sketch, he includes a telescope. Only later is he told the telescope hadn't been invented at that point. So he takes it out of the final picture just so there be no anachronisms at all.
0: That's fascinating. And so tell me about the reception of this painting. So it's made in 1873, as you say, at this moment where it's really important for Poland to define itself. It's, an, it's a nationalistic uh, work to a certain degree. But how was it received in its time? Did it create controversy or was it immediately welcomed by the Polish people and the Polish state?
4: The picture was immediately uh, welcomed by the Polish people. It was shown at the Learned Society of Krakow. Uh, and so enthusiastic was the response to it that a subscription was immediately launched to buy the picture, because in fact, Mateko had painted it on speculation. Um, immediately a subscription to buy the painting and to present it to the greatest of all Polish intellectual institutions, the Jagiellonian University. And that's what was done almost immediately. Before that happened, though, it was sent to the World's Fair in Vienna, at that point, Vienna actually controlled that part of uh, southern uh, Poland at that time as a citizen of Krakow Mateko answered to the Austro-Hungarian emperor. But, of course, Austria was very happy to see the Poles put the Germans in their place, to see them claim Copernicus for Poland and thus pull him away from from the Germans. So it all worked out for everyone and of course inevitably
0: it was all political. Of course. So tell us about today, you know, how significant is this painting to the Polish people today?
4: Uh, It is very famous in Poland. It hangs in the aula, in the Senate chamber of the Jagiellonian University. All of the great events of that great university take place underneath the gaze of Copernicus. Uh, as I understand it, every PhD is given under the gaze of Copernicus in that room. So it still plays a very, very important role.
0: And lastly, where do you place Matejko in that sort of grand painting of the 19th century? As, as I say, you know, enormously famous in his, his homeland, not so much elsewhere. How does he compare to sort of some of those other great 19th century figures, do you think?
4: I think that his technical virtuosity and his ability to marshal hundreds of people in in certain images. I mean, Copernicus is one of his simpler paintings. There is only one person in it. Some of them have hundreds. And the ability to marshal such force in creating images is really unique even at that point. And I think we will come to understand that it is, as it were, the very last flowering of history painting It begins in the 15th to 16th century. And here at the end, it is being turned to the purpose of defining what a nation is. Uh, and that was its, I would say in the late 19th century, its last great function to help nations define themselves. And I would argue that mateko, even though we've almost entirely forgotten him, mateko is the last great exponent of what history painting can do.
0: Christopher, thank you so much for telling us about this painting.
3: You're welcome.
2: Conversations
0: with God, Jan Matejko's Copernicus is at the National Gallery in London from the 25th of March to the 27th of June 2021. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and The Brush With if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Andres and Sonia, to Dan, and to Christopher and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online,
1: art,
2: anytime.